Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. All right, so turn with me to the book of Titus. You know, it's funny. I have notes written all over Titus, and I don't ever remember preaching out of it. Um, so I don't know what the, this might have been from somebody else's sermon, um, but I don't know what these are in here for. We're just going to go with it. Uh, I did write this message, I promise. Uh, it's in my handwriting. And I never heard it, so I'm not sure how we got here. But uh, this, is, um, this is a housekeeping message, okay? Because how many of you know this is a house, and we need to keep it, right? So housekeeping message, maybe not like, you know, huge prophetic or apostolic insight, maybe not groundbreaking, earth-shaking, you know, life-altering. Although I, I think anytime we get in the Word, it should be life-altering, Amen. Um, so Titus is a great little book. It's what I call a bathroom read, okay? So I, there, and there's little bits and bops all over the place that I, I don't want us to lose. And so I, uh, I would encourage you after this message, we're going to be in the third chapter today, but after this message, um, go home and read this book. It's quick and bring the message back into the context of the whole Um, I'm going to do a little bit of that for you, but not a lot. This is Paul writing to Titus and who he left uh, as as an overseer. And um, in fact, in chapter one, verse five, he says, for this reason, I left you in Crete. Um, It sounds kind of bad, doesn't it? It's like anytime, you know, we're following somebody and we love somebody and they leave us behind. It feels like a bad thing. Uh, You know, like when I pull out of the driveway and leave one of my kids in the house. Um, when it's time for school, you know, or something like that. It seems like a bad thing, but really there's purpose behind it. You know, like, no, like, uh, take your time and get ready, and we'll catch in on the next round. Um, so he leaves Titus in Crete, and if you, if you read that next line, so this isn't the message, but in chapter 1, verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order, okay, order, right? Remember, we spent a whole year or more on order, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, right? And then he gets into a list of um, sort of a plan. It's not really a policy. It's like a guide um, for what you're looking for in church leadership. And, um, And a lot of this order you know, we, we were reaching into back when the church first started. I remember when the church first started, if you weren't here, uh, there were 10 men whose families made up the original sort of like 43-ish or so folks. And that group of 10 guys, we were maybe like, I don't know, um, six, eight weeks into, uh, into this church meeting regularly on Sunday mornings. And that, that group of guys had been part of a prayer meeting that Ron Eaton had put together uh, seven months prior to this church starting. And so they were praying every other Tuesday night, which is actually where our Tuesday night prayer meeting started. They predate this church by seven months or so. And so for years, we look back, and we always said it was two years because the Lord did two years worth of work in seven months. Um, but it was nuts. So the groundwork was laid, the church starts, and there's 10 of us, and we're like, all right, biblically, the pattern for church leadership is elders, and elders that look like this. 
And so we, we read a little handbook on eldership and we were kind of trying to figure out, okay, how do we move from this group of 10 guys who had just been praying and interceding and wanting to see what God had next for New England? And um, one night I had a dream. We tried a couple different ways and they seemed rickety. It was like, eh, okay, it seems kind of like we're not doing the drawing of straws thing, but it just, it felt like, all right, well, who's an elder? I don't know. I, do I think I'm one? Is it weird if I say you're one or do you, if you say you're one or whatever? And I remember one night I had a dream and in the dream, I was standing before our church with a whiteboard. And if you were here back in those days, you know the whiteboards. We bought two of them, and they were like a, it was like a little whiteboard on an aluminum tripod that never stood up. You know the tripods, and they're like one leg is always like gimpy? It was that tripod. And so in the dream, I'm standing in front of the tripod, and I wrote down three names on the whiteboard. And it was Ron, Randy, and Dave. And I... And I asked the church if anyone had any reason why these men do not qualify as biblical elders. And I, again, we had been reading through this and studying this and that sort of thing. And just kind of, have you ever, have you ever known what was right, but then just needed to know how to get there? It's part of our like walk with the Lord. It's like, you know what's right. You know what the next step is, but you're not sure maybe how to do it the best way. And so... Literally the following Sunday, um, I put up the whiteboard in front of the church and I wrote down Ron, Randy, and Dave on it. And at that time, the church was so small that there was only one Ron, Randy, and Dave. <laughs> we, were, we were roughly like between, I don't know, 70, probably 70 people or so at the time. And I said, does anybody in here have any reason why these men and their wives do not qualify as biblical elders? And um, nobody did. And so... Aren't you grateful that nobody did? I was just like, let's see what happens, you know? Um, and, so, and so that sort of set in place publicly um, our eldership. And it's, it's incredible how the grace of God over years and over, over now, over a dozen years, um, how the grace of God has worked in tandem with what we know to be right, with things that we see, things that we hear, things that we catch from the Lord, because scripture is clear. We see in part, we see in part, and then the Lord fills in the holes. And if we're not, if we're not ready and anticipating him to come in and fill in those holes, what we end up doing is we sort of blow off um, important things. We blow off revelation. And I'm not saying like revelation that's equal to scripture. I'm saying revelation that brings clarification to scripture as you apply it in your life and as we apply it in the church. There's another little blurb down here that I want to point out before we get to the message. In the same chapter, chapter 1, down in verse 15, I'm going to read this to you. It says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. That is a good word. Honestly, I could just stop and preach on that. This is Titus. It's short, but it's like I, we, could do, we could do a sermon on this. In fact, without ever hitting this, we did do a sermon on this. And it was a word that I had heard years ago um, from Roosevelt Hunter in Lakeland, Florida. And the Lord just never let me forget it. It was one of those words that just sits in you and stirs. And I think over the years, there have been two messages that I've ever gone back and said, Lord, 
I want to rewrite this for our church for this time, for this season. And this was one of those two. When he talks about Noah in the ark, sending out the raven and then sending out the dove. And I talked about how in each of us, there's a raven and there's a dove. And when we're pure and it's that dove of the Holy Spirit that scouts for us, that which is pure will find that which is pure. It takes one to know one. That dove looking for peace will bring back an olive branch. You know what I'm saying? But if you send out the raven, you know what ravens eat, right? Death. Ravens feed off of, they are sustained by death. And so you got to think, here's Noah on this ark. The waters are beginning to recede. And there's death everywhere. Everywhere. Death and carnage animals and people, the entire human race is left behind, washing up on the shores of, of a brand new earth. And, and to send out the raven in that moment, listen, that raven's going to find exactly what it's looking for. And I've set it up here before because um, it's not uncommon for folks to, um, to seek out the issues it's not uncommon for people um, to really go after um, whatever, whatever bit of flesh is still attached to a thing. And listen, Scripture is clear. We are to crucify our flesh. Scripture does not say we're to crucify each other's. We're to crucify our own flesh. Amen? Amen? Jesus went to the cross willingly. We think that it was the Roman soldiers that put him up there, but, but he took that cross and allowed himself to be crucified for the sake of the Father, okay? What it means for us is if you're pure in your heart, you're going to find the pure thing that God is doing in any room, in any city, in any home. But that which is defiled is only going to find more defilement. Guess what? There are issues here. There are problems here. It's not a perfect place, you know? We're, we're, we do not have the um, employee satisfaction rate that Google does. Because we have, and really the only thing left to do is to put the sleep pods in, you know, the, the napping pods. So I think we're going to do that. Just kidding. We're not. Not even close. But... At the end of the day, I, I, I have felt a call back to an innocence with which to look at what God's doing. Every time God's doing anything, you could poke holes in it. Every time he's doing anything, those who are defiled and unbelieving, they won't be able to find anything pure. It says, to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even the pure things aren't pure because they're seeing everything through a broken filter. We've had incredibly prophetic people fellowship with us for long seasons over the years. And um, I remember one brother sending emails regularly. Um, and, you know, he's what I call like a doom and gloom prophet um, because everything was bad 
everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Everybody in church is a sinner. We're all going to go to hell. It's like, it was just like, no matter what, no matter what, it was never enough. It was never good enough. No matter what. I mean, the glory cloud could come in and he'd say it was marijuana haze. I'm telling you. It was like, you just, you couldn't, you couldn't. And, and I, and I finally, I remember, I remember one day I wrote, I wrote him a long email and I loved this guy. Otherwise I wouldn't have written him back. Um, just kidding. I'd have had somebody else. I would have had Pastor Will write him back. And, uh, and I, I love him. And I was like, hey, man, I said, right message, wrong room. Like, like read the room. I get it. There are going to be times when we are called of God to say hard things, correcting things, rebuking things. But like, Unless we can come with that pure heart, that regenerated heart that Titus goes on to talk about, I mean, that Paul goes on to tell Titus about, unless we can look at things through those eyes, we'll never see what Jesus saw. We'll never see a bride. We'll only see a prostitute. And so it is absolutely imperative, saints, that we approach everything God's doing with that purity and innocence. Amen? Okay, now let's get to the message. Here we go. Titus 3. Scott Axman told me one time, he was like, Zach, in the 10 minutes, 15 minutes between worship and the message starting, that's when you actually lead your church. For 10 minutes on a Sunday morning, that's when you're really leading. I don't know that I 100% buy it hook, line, and sinker, but I'll tell you what, I get it. Because it's in these times when we have conversations about, hey, like, if you go to this church, there's a responsibility and a maturity to stay invested and give in what's going on. Hey, there's some housekeeping. There's some spiritual housekeeping that needs to take place. There are some, there are some ownership that we need to take to how we're approaching things, the attitude that we have about what God's doing and the part that we have to play in it. All right, chapter three. We're gonna read um, a handful of verses here, and I'm just gonna start. Okay, so... This is Paul, again, the apostle, telling Titus, the overseer, um, some things to do as, he, uh, as he's interacting with leaders and folks who are rising up in this new fledgling body of Christ. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Verse 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? When the kindness of our God and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of, here it is, regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, pay attention, so that, being justified 
by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. We'll stop right there. So I think this is interesting because here is a church leader reminding other church leaders that we have to be subject to authority. And at this point, he's really talking about worldly authority. At this point, if you follow this, there's kind of already, I mean, he uses the words rulers, right? Um, that's, that, that, there's no language like that concerning church polity, okay? So he throws this out, make sure that you're subject to authority. And I want to just take a couple notes today. If you're writing things down, write this down. How we respond to natural authority will indicate whose spiritual authority we're really under. How we respond to natural authority will indicate whose spiritual authority we're really under. To be subject to authority is different than choosing to be under authority. To be obedient to a thing doesn't mean necessarily that you're subscribing to its gospel. And I know that's true because there are people who are obedient to the teachings of Jesus, but who are not really subscribed to the gospel. Well, the same thing is true of the world. To be obedient, I'm just going to say one that's really close to my heart, to be obedient to the speed limit, for instance. To be obedient to doesn't mean that you're agreeing with the legislative branch of the government that set those things in place. And I think this is interesting because, like I said just a minute ago, Jesus submitted to an authority that he was never really under. He submitted to an authority. He submitted to the Roman government, and, and ultimately he ends up submitting to the Pharisaical jurisdiction that put him on the cross. But we know that Jesus wasn't really under their authority because in, 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 uh, in that altercation with Peter in the garden, and, and he says it, don't you think that I could call down a legion of angels? I'm submitting myself to something that by choice, that I don't really have to but I'm submitting to this authority because I'm really under that one. We choose obedience here because we forfeit our right to choose it there. Do you go through the scripture and say, mm, I love it, I love it not. I love it, I love it not. And do you, who's like ripping out the pages of the books that they just don't like? Anybody? Anybody just blacklining, like CIA filing, you know, stuff in the Bible that you just don't want to read anymore? There's some stuff in here that I just don't love. I know um, Kim and I have had a lot of conversations about Moses not making it into the promised land. And we both have a, a we've, we've got an issue with that. I don't love that. 
I feel like Moses earned it. Like, let the guy cross the river and eat a big fat grape or something. Like, and then kill him. You know what I'm saying? Like, like for the, can somebody bring back some milk and honey? Okay, and sustain him while he just has a room with a view somewhere. No, there is some stuff that we don't love. But when we accept that Jesus is the son of God and that God is the creator of the universe and that all of this word is infallible and inerrant and inspired by the Holy Spirit, we are forfeiting our right to black line things. We are forfeiting our right to choose, pick and choose what we want to obey and what we don't. And because we have forfeited that right with his authority, we are choosing to submit ourselves to the things of this world, the authorities and the rulers of this world, not everything of this world. So there's a lot we could say about that. And I want you to know that if there was ever a message that I've ever preached that was the pot calling the kettle black, it's this one, okay? Will, can we even say that anymore? I don't even know if that's politically correct. <laughs> I, I just, I know that, I know that I read this stuff and, and, I'm, and I'm convicted. I'm convicted because I, I have an issue with anything that doesn't make sense or is operating illegitimately or illegally or, you know, inefficiently or to my personal standards. And so, Kurt, easy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Kurt's like, yes, you do have that problem, Pastor. Thank you. Would you just have a time of prayer over me, please? But I, I love this, and I, I just want to say, I just want to say um, a thing about rebellion really quick. Uh, and I'm not going to get super um, spiritual on you or anything like that, but I, I heard rebellion, um, Jackie Santos one time defined rebellion as illegitimate authority. Illegitimate authority. And what that means is it means anything deciding that it is its own authority. Now, if you, if you draw that into the church of New England and most believers, we, we live in a world where we are our own supreme authority. That is the humanistic mindset. It's that we are God. And, and so we submit, but only when it's convenient or when it makes sense or when it's to climb a ladder to, uh, to achieve a desired result. We'll submit, we'll subject ourselves, but that's it. And the problem with that is it is rooted in a Jezebel spirit. It, it, it can be traced back to the illegitimate authority that we take upon ourselves, rebellion, which finds a way to manipulate and deceive. And really, actually, if you read the word, I'm not, I got to get to the message here, but Jezebel was a prophetess. Jezebel was a prophetess. And so using even what I believe are God-given gifts to manipulate and deceive her way around submitting to authority, becoming her own authority, while disguising it as subjection to authority, that's her relationship with Ahab, it's an incredibly dangerous thing. And where it leaves the bride today is it leaves us going through the word of God and deciding what we like and what we don't like. 
and deciding how to explain away or justify or, or you know, with some really trendy post or promotion or publicity, we find a way to paint ourselves in a certain light to make us becoming our own authority okay. It's a big problem. It's a big problem, saints. So let's keep going because the next line is where it gets kind of cool. So he says, uh, we've all got to be subject to rulers and authorities, obedient and ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable and gentle. But he says in verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves. Anybody like that ship hasn't fully sailed yet? (laughs) We once were foolish ourselves, disobedient deceived, enslaved. And see how he's writing this as in like a wink, wink, like we're not supposed to be this way anymore. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And I want to point something out here. You see, when as believers, when we, uh, when we look at the lost, you know, whether it's um, we hear the girls uh, talk about you know, the, the, their testimonies, their stories of, of transformation. And, you know, we see the before and after pictures. Or maybe, you know, you're, you're um, pulling up to a street light uh, on the corner of Mink Street and the Wampanoag Trail in, in uh, Seekonk, East Providence there. And there's some homeless people there. What, what we do that works for us is we do compassion. And compassion is, it's an easy way to keep our pride intact. Compassion is, is uh, it's sort of like, it's our way of doing the good deeds that he's calling for here without really making any adjustments to who we think we already are and where we think we've already arrived. In fact, where we think we've arrived plays into compassion because we're like, look at all of what I have. I feel guilty pulling up in my, you know, Bentley with, you know, these, I wasn't supposed to say that, but I did, I got a new Bentley and I, it's awkward, you know, with raising money for the building and everything. But anyway, I'm totally joking, totally joking. Um, yes, I drive my wife's company car from Capitol Building and Design. So I don't even, yeah. So anyway, uh, with that said, I've been looking pretty greedily at my son's electric bike lately, and I'm like, I could probably start using that for a commute. The deal is this. What the Lord really calls for here is not just compassion. When, when, when he writes this line to Titus, for once we also were all of these things, he's saying you, you can't just look at the loss through the lens of the ones who are broken and the ones who are homeless and the ones who are impoverished and the ones who are addicted and the ones that you can easily register lower than you on the sliding scale of life. No, he's saying to those rulers, to those authorities, to the ones who are, who are getting wealthy off of your taxes or your backs or, or to the boss who is a liar and a cheater and a fraud and a whatever else. He's saying, even to those, remember, you were there. This isn't just the before and after of look when I was in the gutter. No, it was look when I was lying on my taxes. 
Look back to a time. See, our testimony is not just about uh, what we were brought out of from the low places. It's how this gospel humbles us. Sometimes it causes us to give up things that we liked, not just give up the things that we, the habits we were trying to kick. Housekeeping. This housekeeping message. For once we were foolish. This isn't just about compassion. It's about humility. And it's about having enough humility to say, you know what? It wasn't that long ago that I had not yet been sanctified from that, from that thing. Yeah, it'd be nice to be able to go and do that. It'd be nice. It was nice. It felt good to my flesh. That was a thing I didn't want to give up. And it does rub me the wrong way that this guy hasn't given it up yet or that all these people are still enjoying it. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He saved us. I love it. Romans 2 tells us that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, which is very contrary to the way some of us were brought up, right? Say you're sorry. (laughs) Anybody else? No, okay. Anybody grow up in the South? I remember, I see that hand, Lisa Beth, I see that hand. Uh, I remember thinking I had it bad because my mom would um, spank me with a shoe with a leather bottom. I said that once and somebody was like, a high heel? No, it was just a a leather bottom. It wasn't, you know. Anyway, neither one of us enjoyed it. No, I'll say it that much. And I would get, I would get, oof, I would get it so bad with a, a leather shoe bottom. And I thought, I mean, I was feeling sorry for myself. And we move into this house. And I, one day, and I had a friend, Seth Bowman, probably shouldn't have said his name. I won't in second service. Um, and a buddy of mine lives next door. And I see his dad come out with a switch from a bush that was like, eight feet long and makes the kid drop trow in the middle of the yard and swats his bare bottom with this switch. And I'm like, okay, okay, I've got it good. Okay, where's that shoe at? Let me go get it for you. We, we, uh, by the way, I believe in, I believe in, in discipline, but I believe that we discipline the ones we love. I believe the father disciplines the ones he loves. He says it in his word that I chastise, I scold sons, not just slave. This isn't about a slave thing. No, we think that, oh, if we're getting beat, we're immediately put into the slavery department. No, I correct, I rebuke, I scold, I chastise. I discipline my sons, the ones whom I love. And so when we read this line, In Romans, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Or you see this in Titus where it says uh, his kindness and his love for mankind appeared and that's what saved us. I believe that it should evoke in us a response to realize that that same kindness in us is what will save the world. That That same demonstration and manifestation the way that we're loved, that's the way we have to love. It can't be out of pity. It can't be just out of compassion alone. 
But that humility has to enter the picture. Bill Johnson was sharing something a while back, and it was really convicting. Um, this is a great message to put a bunch of commercial breaks in, so I hope, yeah, we're going to get through it. I'm, I'm usually more focused than this, but I feel like there's all these little public service announcements that need to be inserted. And so I'm going to tell you this one. Um, he said a while back that, and I forget exactly how he said it, but he was like, real, the, the test of real humility is, um, is if we can be okay with other believers not sharing our burden. Like whatever your pet project is, whatever is on your heart, whatever you think deserves everything, all the money in the coffer or all the square footage in the building or all the, the days on the calendar or whatever. And I will tell you, no truer words have been spoken. Ashley and I, since this church has started, we've just been boggled by how many folks are incredibly selfish about the kingdom as it pertains to their own little thing, whatever their deal is. And I want to tell you, the, the ministries that have taken off the rocket launch pad and gone into the stratosphere and are still orbiting today, I think of ministries like Bags of Hope. I think of, of longstanding um, things that, that are invested in by churches all over this region and now all over the country. Why? Because Kim and John Gagney have always been able to see bags of hope through the kingdom lens instead of the kingdom through the bags of hope lens. And then we've had people come and they're like, why don't you guys have a street ministry? Why aren't you guys doing anything for the homeless? And then people will get upset because money spent here or money spent there or we're doing this or why are you buying a mall? We, should, we shouldn't even have a building. We should be out on the street. Well, it's like, we're kind of like, the Lord did this. You know what I'm saying? We didn't want it. We weren't going after this. We were trying to build a Taj Mahal down there. I'm just kidding. No, we weren't. But I, but I, I read these lines and I, and I think to myself, man, isn't that, isn't that really what the kingdom looks like? When we're willing to see each other. I think Pastor Kurt talked about this not that long ago. Maybe he's in a staff meeting, a devotional recognizing each other as better than ourselves, seeing each other and being able, to, being able to find the will and the work of the Father in each other and put it above ourselves. His kindness. You know, John writes that the world will know that we're Christians by our love and a lot of times, you know, people with a heart for a loss, they just say, well, that's, how we love the world, but it's how we love each other first. Isn't it? The world has fooled everybody into believing that they all love each other. And we're doing a pretty crappy job of showing them what loving each other really looks like. Our kindness and the love he has for mankind appeared and with its appearing, he saved us. All right, let's keep going. <clears throat> so the next line, uh, he says this, and it's, it's actually pretty powerful. 
He says he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, amen, thank God, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, but here it goes, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs. It's a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. This entire book is a call and response. The, the, the whole letter is a, here's what God's gonna do, here's what you're gonna do. Here's what God's already done, and here's what it means you can now do. Here's what God's promises are, so here's your part of it. And it's this dance that sometimes we, uh, we lose sight of. It's like sometimes because the Holy Spirit won't fit in our selfie, we'll take one without him. We end up rather doing like a solo dance than the, than the call and response, than the give and take, than the tug and the push and the pull of what it really means to partner with the Lord. And this thing right here, as we go through this, he's throwing out things like, hey, by the way, it wasn't any of your righteous deeds that got this for you, but it's the regeneration and the renewing that only he can do. The regeneration of your heart. Nothing you can do can make your heart new. Nothing you can do can make old things go away and, and all things become new. However, at the same time, so much of the New Testament is written requiring a response. He's revealed himself through regeneration. He's revealed himself through renewal. And yet we see lines like, so be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, that's on you. Your heart is regenerated by the work that he does. But our minds are regenerated when we start to take thoughts captive. Amen? And part of the reason why we never make it or why we struggle to make it or by the skin of our teeth make it to the lines in here being careful and ready to do every good deed, every, every good deed that's required and blah, blah, blah. He goes on and on saying it again and again. The reason why it, we struggle to get to those things that we need to do is because our part of the deal, we're kind of doing half-heartedly. God doesn't do anything halfway. It's our stuff. If you're writing things down, write this down. Trusting his part equals confidence on ours. He does the regeneration and he does the renewing, but I'm gonna tell you something, and it's clockwork, it's textbook. When we begin to lose our confidence in his ability to do what he says he's gonna do and has already done, when we stop trusting in him, we lose confidence in us. We try to compensate for it and make up for it by over-exerting and striving on our end where we doubt the Lord, where we think he's going to fail us, where maybe we're not really believing that he can pull off this whole regeneration thing. You didn't really make me new, so uh, I've got I've to put in some man hours here too. No, there's stuff you have to do. What's hard is that that stuff's not getting done because you're trying to do the creator's job. See how it works? So let's keep going because I want to, uh, I really want to get to this part right here. 
So these things are good and profitable for men, he says. But in verse 9, it says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Does anybody in here argue over genealogies? I'm just wondering. It's because you're not Jewish, all right? Just will. What is it? Which one of us is more Haitian? Because it's clearly me. But watch this right here. Avoid all this stuff, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He just got through saying what's good and profitable, right? He just got through saying these things, the things above there, are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Watch this. Verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Well, that's interesting and hard to swallow for a region that prides itself in division. I want to just make a couple of notes here. First of all, when he says avoid these things, these controversies, I want you to understand that you're not avoiding this stuff because it's not important, okay? You're sacrificing them in an effort to see the bigger picture, He doesn't say avoid it because it's sinful or wrong. He says avoid it because it's not profitable. You remember Scott a couple weeks ago, he says, listen, some things are permissible, but it doesn't mean they're profitable. And the instruction here, especially to leaders, especially to elders, especially to those who are being identified. And by the way, I've said it before. If you're new here, I'm going to say it again. I preach to this church like you're all called to ministry because I believe you are all called to ministry. I preach to this church like every single person in this room has an anointing of God and a call on their life, a destiny to operate in kingdom work, okay? So we're raising the standard. We're raising the bar. It's not the guy with the collar here, okay? It's not the guy with the degree or the office or the title, all right? We're a church... Of prophets. That's right, John. We need that on a wall somewhere. You're not avoiding this stuff because it's not important. You're sacrificing them. Aren't we called to make sacrifices over and over and over? Did you ever think that crucifying your flesh might not just be that like sinful pleasure that you indulge in when no one's looking? It might also be the spiritual pride, the religiosity that we cling to as we unprofitably argue over things that are way less important than eternity. When we accept the gospel, we forfeit so much. Nobody's ever preaching that. But we give up so much. We have to. Because otherwise, we're denying the power of the very gospel that we've just accepted to save us. See, I, I, I think it was my senior sermon at Zion and there was like this like a spirit of offense that was just going around the campus. And, um, and I remember Zion was a weird school because there, like, it was, there was just as many like senior citizens enrolled there living on campus, like doing dorm life, you know, as there were like high school graduates. You know, like my next door neighbor was an immigrant and he was like cooking fish in a hot pot every night and I want to kill him because this room smelled so bad. 
and um, it was like, it was just a really bizarre concoction, um, and I really won't name names because so many people in here know who it was, but I, I, I feel like this spirit of offense was just starting to permeate people. Where it was almost like people were looking for reasons to be offended. This is at Bible school, by the way. And that's the kind of thing we're teaching. Um, you know, what, what, I'm offended. You said that, you sung this song, that line in this one song, that's offensive. You did that, you did this. He got off the stage at that point. Zach, I, lit- I got points taken off a grade one time because I had an apple up on my keyboard and I was eating it while we were doing worship. It was offensive, it was offensive. And I preached this message. I remember Chris Green, who went on to be a missionary in the Netherlands, and now he's pastoring in um, New Hampshire or something somewhere. And Chris Green said to me, Zach, he said, here's the thing about offense. He was like, we forfeit our right to offense when we accept the cross. Because Jesus took all that offense with him and nailed it on a cross. So every time we choose offense, forget all of the negative things that it does to us. We are diminishing the power of the gospel as it pertains to our lives because we're pulling things down saying, yeah, but this offense is so big that not even you could take it to the cross, Jesus. So I don't even want to hear about y'all's offense, okay? We forfeit. We forfeit rebellion, our right to rebel. We forfeit our pet peeves and our pet projects. We forfeit our right to offense, because he took it all to the cross. And if you're writing things down, write this down. If it's not a battle you can fight fruitfully, then it's not your battle. When he's saying avoid these controversies, it's because those controversies can go on and on and on and on and on. And the only person that wins is Satan. Nobody wins. Nobody wins that argument except the devil, because all he wants to do is divide and conquer. But divide comes first. So if it's not a battle, you can fight fruitfully. And what I mean by that is, as I mean, there are times when we have to argue a little bit. There are times when we have to engage in a controversial matter. But can we be discerning and sensitive enough to know whether or not This is going to be a fruitful fight. And can we pull back from that fight and let our pride die instead of ourselves, instead of our witness, instead of the truth that we stand for? If it's not a battle, you can fight fruitfully. It's not your battle. The good news is it's somebody else's. It's somebody else's battle. You know how many times I've tried to fight a battle inefficiently, unfruitfully, futilely, and then my wife says like one line to in whatever situation is happening, and I'm like, crap. (laughs) And then I'm like in another room like that, and I like try to say the same line, but it's still not my battle. You know what I'm saying? I don't have that anointing. It like had to come from a pretty person. You know what I'm saying? You're more than just a pretty face, babe. But sometimes it's her battle, and I'm just called to support her in it. 
Sometimes it's somebody else's battle. Sometimes it's a, somebody's battle that you don't even know. And, and because you don't trust God enough, you feel like if I don't fight this battle right now, no one will. Well, that is tiny-minded. And, and in doing so, you gave up your right to build his kingdom. You're building your empire. If you're not fighting fruitfully, it's not your battle. And the best thing you can do for that battle is to fruitfully fight the one you were called to. One example, first thing that comes to mind is on a national scale, on a like political national level or, or on a spiritual level on a national scale. Everybody wants, to, everybody wants to go and fight that battle. Everybody wants to make it their point, their soapbox they're going to use, their YouTube channel, their podcast, their social media, their T-shirts, their flags, their bumper stickers, their whatever to, um, to engage, to fight a certain battle. What's interesting is that not only is that not actually going to change anything, but what it does is it makes it harder for the men and women of God who actually are called and anointed to fight on that scale. The best thing that can happen for the folks who are interceding and prophesying and, and speaking into those powers that be because that's the calling on their life, the best thing is for the church to be really, 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 really healthy, for the bride to be really, 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 really strong, for, for us to grow up, to mature into the full stature of Christ so that when we're pointing at the church, we're pointing at a more excellent way. We're pointing at the bride. We're pointing at, at a better option than what the world has to offer instead of just being psychotic and fruitless. There are people called to fight that battle. There are people called to fight that battle. And you were called to fight yours. And finally, I just want to uh, do a quick little study here of these two words in closing. The word reject, it comes from a Greek word that just says not to pay attention to, not to associate with, and refuse to obey. So... This is interesting. Again, now we transitioned out of your, you know, local authorities and rulers, and we're talking about among Christians, okay? Because you know, because Jews were the only ones arguing over genealogies at this point. Um, foolish things, religious things. And, and when he comes in and he uses this word reject, it's paropeomai. And this word, it doesn't mean hate those people. It doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't mean build your life around pitting yourself against them. It just means don't pay attention to them. It means that thing, that argument, and the spirit of division that person's carrying is robbing you of the actual thing that you're called to on purpose. There is a, a, a divisive spirit at work seeking to do this, seeking to, to, to bring up these divisive things in and among the body. Housekeeping. And finally, the word factious, 
It means divisive or schismatic, but it comes from a Greek word and it's hierotikos, and it's literally where we get the word heretic. I think it's strong language. Like I see heretic and I'm like, that's fighting words. Like that's not just like, man, he thinks this, I think that, blah, blah, blah. No, because division in and of itself, regardless of what the theological or the political or the whatever thing that was being argued over, wherever that falls is of less consequence to the father than the fact that the division itself is counterproductive. It's actually an antagonizing work against what he's trying to do. And so I, I read this and I, I feel like these are the things that can sleep. These are the things that can go under the radar. This isn't just like, you know, a big brawl like on a baseball field when both teams go at it. That's not usually how it works. It's much more subtle than that. It's much more sustainable than that. The big fights, the big, you know, I said it back when the church was real young and I said, um, we're never gonna have a business meeting. We, have the, we had every year this thing called a family meeting where we updated people on business and hires and, um, you know, budgets and all that kind of stuff. And um, we'll probably get back into those again. Uh, we were kind of using COVID as an excuse, like the rest of the world. And um, so I was thinking like, hey, let's just, eh, we don't need those. Um, but we called them a family meeting because so many of us have had bad experiences from church business meetings. I feel like just the word church business meeting is an, it's an oxymoron, yeah. <laughs> Emphasis on moron. Um, and, and I feel like, we, we, we had people who business meeting was like a trigger for them, you know, because it's like that's why they're at this church is because their last church has a business meeting and, you know, that's what happens. And the deal is, is we, we've got to be aware of these things. We've got to be more sensitive and more discerning than the world when it comes to that which is seeking to pit us against each other. And the final sort of closing bit to this letter, when uh, Paul's writing it, he kind of closes out with this thing, and he encourages, uh, he encourages this young church um, to be helpful to some other ministers who are coming through. And he says, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. I believe the Lord's called us to bear fruit much fruit and fruit that remains. Amen? Would you stand with me? Come on. And what I, what I think is what I see, what my experience has been, um, you know, and I have the blessing and the honor of meeting with um, other pastors uh, regularly and, and the, what, what you kind of come away with from these things is how burdened churches are by division. How burdened churches are by 
really petty things. And I'm, again, I'm going to say petty in the big picture. We, we, we pick mountains to die on that are not the mountain of God. We choose battles that we were never called to. And then we build for ourselves trophy cases that we were never meant to win because it was a battle we were never meant to fight. Or, or we suffer loss after loss after loss and we start to identify with being under something that, that we were never supposed to associate with at all. And so my heart this morning, and I believe the Father's heart for us, is that there, there is a world of stuff, beautiful, fruitful things, incredible things that we were meant to engage in, not just out of a haughty act of compassion, sounds again oxymoronic, but you get it, not just, not just a good deed for the sake of a good deed, and certainly not a good deed because righteous deeds are what saves us, but because as this letter states, we've gotta be ready to do these things. We've gotta pre- be prepared to look down the barrel of the gun of this world, fearless about what we've been called to and confident in what we have with each other confident in who this bride is because we've been knit together. Not because we finally found a church that's doing everything right. I'm still looking for that church. They're not accepting applications. I don't want a perfect church. I want a perfect God. I want a church that on the reg reminds me of how I need to be redeemed and renewed and regenerated. But I want a church where I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with people, filling the trenches of New England because there is a battle we've been called to. There is a war that we're fighting. And saints, I believe that by the power of his Holy Spirit, we're winning. So Father, I thank you I thank you for what you've called us to. And I thank you for what you haven't. God, I thank you that, uh, that just as this letter was written to that young church, Lord, that I can look out on a young church today and know that this same truth is for us. And so God, where there's a, a little bit of rebellion or illegitimate authority that we've given place to in us, where we're allowing voices in our lives to um, to retraject the path that you've set before us. God, I pray that we would turn a deaf ear to those things and that they would be replaced by a magnificent and overarching truth. God, I pray for a sweet submission and subjection even to authorities around us because of whose authority we're really under. God, I I trust you with this church. I trust you with all, uh, all the, the millions of things that we're presented with daily, it seems like, to be divided over. We hold these things up to you, God. I pray that we wouldn't be a people that are just looking for more mountains to die on or more molehills to turn into mountains to die on. God, I pray that instead 
we would, um, we would keep our eyes locked on you and that we would charge, Lord, the battlefield that you really have called us to. Lord, bring a unity here. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Not a unity for the sake of unity, but a unity for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of the bride. We love you, Lord. And we give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.